Hi everyone, I'm Ben Marsh, I'm the Head of Policy, Strategy and Innovation at the Financial Planning Association and this is FPA Podcast. Today we're going to talk about self-licensing, is it right for me? And this is a conversation with Nadia Docker from Kinetic Compliance and Sean Graham from Assured Support. We're going to explore whether or not self-licensing your AFSL is the right right move for you, for your business, and some of the considerations you need to think about in considering whether or not you move to a self-licensed option or, or whether or not you stick with your existing licensee. We'll be talking about capacity and capability. We'll be talking about laws and regulations. But one of the most interesting parts of this conversation is the, the conversation we have about community and where you can find communities of other self-licensed practices who can help you. So I hope you enjoy today's podcast. So today we're going to talk about self-licensed practices and is self-licensing the right move for me and my practice? There's a lot of lot of change going on around the profession, obviously. And what we wanted to do was just have a conversation, a, a quick conversation about what the process of going through a, of self-licensing yourself was. But what I really wanted to focus on today, and we'll get into that conversation probably in the second half, is is what are really good self-licensed practices look like? What are they doing differently? What makes them tick? What makes them work really well? So just to uh, kick things off, Nadia, in terms of the process of becoming self-licensed, just quickly, what's the process people have to go through? Oh, thanks, Ben. Um, I guess the first part of the process is really about deciding whether going self-licensed is the right thing for you to do. Um, and I always like to start that with a pretty, you know, frank and open discussion around what the motivation to do it is, to talk about the cost considerations um, that come with being self-licensed, also talking about the capability of the people that are going to put themselves forward to be responsible managers of the licence. Uh, it's important to understand how you're going to structure the new AFSL as an entity. It also, we need to know, you know, sort of the number of representatives that are going to come in under a licence, whether it's going to be a sole trader, whether it's, a, you know, a number of businesses that are coming together to start their own AFSL, which can cause its own challenges, which we've seen in the past. So, yeah, there's, I guess it's a really a very personal and um, individual decision to make. Um, and then once we've had that discussion and, you know, the, the client has, or the advisor has had a chance to think about whether they want to go ahead, then we sort of start the process around data gathering and um, information, setting up new companies, doing the background checks, business references, et cetera, to get the application ready to submit to ASIC. And Sean, the application process is quite lengthy and intense from, from my experience in doing license variations and and having a look at license conditions and things like that. What's how long does it sort of take? How big a process is it? One one of the interesting things about the uh, license application itself, though, is that it's a um, it, it's so dependent on the business itself and what they're trying to do. So we've seen some go through very quickly, and when I say quickly, eight eight to ten to twelve weeks. But what we've seen in two thousand and twenty one is it slowed down whether ASIC's internal resources or, or the increased checks they're actually putting in place. So there's a lot more focus now on, you know, controlling entities, uh, conflicts. And so ASIC has seemed to be taking a bit more care uh, with the applications now. So it's it's a much longer process than 
uh, was last year, and every year it seems to just get longer and longer. Now, that shouldn't dissuade those businesses that want to do it, but it's not something you're going to be able to decide on a Friday afternoon and get your licence by you know, Monday morning. It's, it's, it's incredibly complex, particularly when you build in the transition out of your old licence, if that's uh, where you want do you know what is what what's ASIC looking for that's taking longer, or is it just because they've got so many more applications in the in the works? I suspect it's a combination of a number of different things. I think they've got more applications in. There've been a lot of businesses uh, leaving institutional licensees, and they're all being set up and and having to go through that process. Um, the transition process itself, you know, at the moment, ASIC are reluctant to grant the license. For, for a new business where the RMs are still authorised representatives on another licensee. So, again, the, the grant of that licence is often held back by the transition process of the old licensee, but they are spending a lot more time really drilling down into um, not just the formal competencies in the B, B1 table, but in the new licence, what are these people going to be able to, what are they going to be doing in the new licence? So we know they're advisors. We know they've given advice over a long period of time in all these classes about the formal uh, competencies to support the authorisations. What are they going to be doing in the new entity? And if they're going to be the head of finance, where's the experience to demonstrate they can do that? So they are spending a lot more time drilling down. They're spending a lot more time looking at um, the character and competence of the people putting forward as RNs, and they're taking a lot more time to look at that relationship piece. You know, who's actually controlling that entity what parties and shareholders and in some cases it can be incredibly complex because there are some applicants who don't really understand the tax structures that their accounts are put in place when they start the application process so thanks sean and and i think that touches back on a point you made a minute ago nadia that uh, capability is probably a really important factor in that decision to become self-licensed uh it sounds like from the from the regulator's perspective the capability of the people that are in the business and and their roles is really important um is there anything in particular people should be thinking about from a capability perspective in terms of i mean the reality is every financial planner is the world's best financial planner what makes them capable to to run a licensee run their own licensee and do that on top of, of being a financial planner yeah, so I guess um, typically, the, well, the advisors that we see applying to be responsible managers go through the experience requirements. So that means that they need three out of the last five years um, in the areas of authorisation that they are seeking. So they usually sort of get through with no issues around sort of the, I guess, the main areas of advice, you know, the super investment insurance piece, but occasionally they'll have, you know, a couple of outlier clients that might have uh, margin lending that they're not able to get authorization for because they don't have that experience that will get past ASIC. The other thing that they also need to consider is um, if you are going to be a sole RM uh, or whether you've got two RMs coming into a licence, whether there's going to be a key person condition applied on that licence as well. Um, and that's a really important consideration as for anyone thinking about going self-licensing because if something does happen to that key person RM, the AFSL isn't able to operate if for whatever reason, whether it's due to health or other issues that they're taken out of the business for an extended period of time. So we do try to de-risk that aspect of um, putting forward RMs, trying to get at least two if we can. But as well, we've got plenty of clients that we work with that are sole trader RMs. So 
uh, it's just, yeah, it's probably the experience um, piece is, is the main one that you need to demonstrate to ASIC through your business references and your qualifications. And they're also looking that the RM will be meeting the FASEA education requirements by the end of 2026. Can I just add something there, Ben? Is that one of the biggest challenges, every financial planner is the best financial planner and they're all awesome, right? Except that it's a given. But there's a very great difference between being a financial planner and running a licence in that all the things that they used to just abdicate responsibility for that was handled by someone in head office or, you know, everything from the finances to the, the documentation to the systems, all the bits and pieces that traditionally the licensee had done and generally not got much respect for doing suddenly become their responsibility. And there's a big, there's a steep learning curve from taking the theoretical uh, position so they They've read the regulatory guides or had the regulatory guides 104, 105 explained to them, they understand what an RM is, to having the reality of actually being in a business, being in a license and being responsible for those types of things and operationalising that. And this is where the biggest gap is. So what we tend to see is you either get the guys who, I'm using that in a non-gender specific way, but you get the guys who, who come from big institutions and they're a one-man band and they've got a risk framework that covers international counterparty risk uh, and everything on downwards, you know, 5,000 different elements. They've got an obligation and risk register that they can't possibly manage without a team of 40 people because that's what they're used to. Um, and you've got other guys who then start their licence and then start trying to build it from scratch themselves. And again, you know, we're seeing this across the board is that operationalising any type of theoretical knowledge is complex and if you don't know what you're doing when you start you can get there but it's going to be a very torturous and expensive journey uh, to to learn as you go plus there are a lot of consequences and liabilities if you get it wrong thanks sean and i feel like that's a great point so and it'd be good to explore that a bit more is that you can be a phenomenal financial planner you can be phenomenal at running a business you can be phenomenal at being a responsible manager and running your own licensee. It's very hard to be phenomenal at all of those three things at once. And um, so getting back to this, this concept of what do really good practices who are self-licensed do, how do they sort of handle that each of those roles and each of those needs to be to really, really good at so that you're running a really good self-licensed practice. I'm happy to start taking that one if that's okay. Um, I think simply, and Sean's probably going to agree with me on this one, it's outsourcing. Uh, outsourcing what you're not good at and recognising that there's a different skill set to uh, AFSL compliance and the monitoring and supervision aspect and day-to-day -day running of an AFSL versus actually being an advisor. Um, most of the people that we work with are predominantly advisors. That's what they want to be. That's their passion. And they don't want too much of their time taken away from that role because they want to be there for their clients. And it takes an enormous amount of time to get your head around all the regulations, the Corporations Act, regulatory guide, information sheets, um, consultation papers. You guys know what I'm talking about. And it's not really something that is sort of, you know, spare 
five minutes in a day. It's you really do need to dedicate some time and resources to it. So um, I think that the practices that we work with probably have a completely separate budget to bring in certain experts, whether it's compliance experts, whether it's uh, business coaches to help with the running of the business and the AFSL. You know, they're obviously outsourcing their IT, they're outsourcing functions like HR, just so that they can focus on doing a really great job for their clients first and foremost, but then also having that peace of mind in the background that there's people around them that can support them um, and making sure that they are meeting their regulatory requirements at the same time. It's almost like having somebody just come in and sort of project manager AFSL and do some of that heavy lifting for you. The only thing I'd add there, Ben, is that if you're going to transition from being an advisor to being self-licensed, the first thing is to understand risk. This is where they really need to, and they need to be comfortable with the level of regulatory and legislative risk they're taking on. Because when they're advisors, they're told, you know, if the margin on the SLA is wrong, you know, it's going to be the end of the world or whatever. You know, and there are a whole range of, of scaremongering that they've been subjected to over a long period of time. But when they get their licence, one of the things is they've got to be able to separate the noise from their real obligations. But they've got to understand that those obligations have force. They're not just theoretical things that somebody else has to deal with. It's there. And when you're self-licensed, the other thing to remember is that, you know, quite different to an institutional licensee is your clients aren't abstractions, right? So there's a direct personal relationship and your reputation and your livelihood is inextricably tied in to the performance of that license. So you've got to be more, you've got to be comfortable with that changing circumstance, and you've got to understand that when you're self-licensed, you are never going to be an advisor or purely an advisor. And they all, whenever they take uh, get become self-licensed, they've got this idea that I'm going to do that and a little bit of the other bit. And what you find is like, you know, nature abhors a vacuum, right? So it's the same principle is that you get your licence and then compliance, legal, whatever else, just takes up more and more of your time. So you've got to be comfortable with that. And to Nadia's point, if you want to balance it, you want to have some type of advice, compliance or management uh, balance, you've got to have really strong processes and procedures in place and really capable people. It doesn't matter whether they're external or internal, but you've got to have the right people. And this is the other thing that financial plans, when they become self-licensed, at, at the same time, ASIC's looking at you and saying, are you an appropriate person to be a responsible manager? The principals in that practice should be looking at their team and going, are these the right people to run a license? Because when all the risk is on you and it's you're carrying the balance sheet and you're doing those things, you need to make sure that the business is well put together. And this is where sometimes you need business coaches to come in. This is sometimes where you need to have a good hard look at staff and go, I need somebody else to come in and manage the practice, or I need somebody else to come in and take over accounts because we just don't have that capability. Thanks, John. So is there a good way to, I mean, it's an all or nothing proposition, right? So you're either, working under somebody else's license or your self-license, is there a good way to kind of start to figure out whether or not making that that journey and that leap and that step is, is the right process? Because, you know, for a lot of our members, they want to be really good professional financial planners. Their passion is to help their clients. 
the frustration with licensing is often the the restrictions and the prescription around how they provide advice, all for, to your point, Sean, all for very good reasons around how do we mitigate the risks of this incredibly complex and difficult ecosystem of regulators and laws and and professional standards that we operate in. So, you know, if somebody is starting to think about this process of becoming self-licensed, what's a good way to start exploring whether or not it's actually right for them and for their business? And yeah, to start to start figuring out whether or not I'm so, going to take that leap and take that risk. I think you've identified what the real issue is there because the, the environment in which they're going to operate is so complex and so frequently changing and so highly regulated and highly visible. One of the, the things they should look at first and foremost is how they approach their own professional development, right? Because if they're on top of their professional development, they're always learning and they're always eager to learn stuff and do stuff, then they're probably going to be okay running a license. But if they're an advisor that's got to be pushed every year to, to do their 40 hours, to do their training, to attend PD days, then you're probably not the right person and employment or authorization from another licensee is probably a better option for you. Because what you do when you get a license is it, it, you're gonna be continuously evolving. Your, your thinking, your business, you're gonna be revising things. I mean, how many times over the past couple of years have we seen licensees have to completely revise something they did seven years ago and, and deal, deal with the consequences of that. So unless your attitude's right, unless you've got that, that discipline to be able to put things in place and the willingness to change things, and to this point, the willingness to bring the right people to the table and take advice, because that's one of the missing pieces. They'll often engage advisors, you know, compliance people, whatever, and then ignore them, right? So if that's your strategy, again, you're better off being authorised by somebody else or being employed or actually going to do something else entirely. Nadia, so those are all great points Sean's mm. made, obviously. Um, what are what are the right type of existing businesses that might start to think about going down that self-licensed path? Sure. I think it's um the, it's the businesses that, you know, it, it, the question we look at is what are you doing when no one's watching? I think it's a really important thing to ask yourself. Like if you're looking to cut corners, you know, you hate compliance, this is really not the space for you. Um, and it's probably one of the first red flags in a conversation with somebody that we, uh, you know, we, we talk about going down this pathway. Um, if you're looking to outrun ASIC, it's just going to become harder coming under self-licensed as well, um, because there's an element of being in control of your own destiny, but you also have to put yourself in the spotlight, you have to self-report, you have to be, um, put yourself in uncomfortable positions. So, I think that the key one, uh, sort of personality traits, we're looking for people that are very self-driven, you know, that they like their independence to a point, but also understand that community is also very important in, in this game as well, because there's a danger in sort of going out on your own and becoming an island and sort of putting the blinkers on, focusing just on your own business and then not really paying attention to what's going on in the greater industry. You know, and they look for, they sort of look at the future, they see it as an exciting opportunity um, and they see that, you know, they're happy to embrace the changes and I think this is probably a tough industry to be in anyway if you don't like change. 
I think if your personality is, is more like you prefer the safety that you would panic if you had a client complaint and had to deal with Africa or you got a, a notification from ASIC just simply because they were uh, doing one of their investigations into, you know, insurance or SMSF or whatever it was. If that sort of sends chills down your spine, then this is probably not the space and you're better off in that dealer group arrangement, um, you know, because you've got the safety of that backup, the support, the hand-holding so that you can focus just on what's important to you. And I think it's probably that value proposition thing as well you know you need to sort of look at your license and see if that's where you're coming from like the larger ones what are the services that you're currently getting that are important to you versus things that you feel like you would you know you want to have improved by potentially taking control of that yourself so yeah I think sort of a pros and cons list can never go astray when you when you're thinking about doing this can I just offer one additional observation is the business fundamentals are important as well like if your practice is barely making making money or it's going backwards, if you haven't invested in systems, if you don't have capital, we, then self-licensing is not for you. It's not a, a license to print money. In fact, you know, self-licensing often costs, you know, not as much as you fear, but certainly more than you anticipate. And the ongoing costs uh, very seldom decrease year on year, as we saw with the ESIC level. Can we touch on that, Sean and Nadia? Jump in if you've got a perspective. What are the sort of costs that you're looking at to to run your business as a self licensed business rather than as a as sort of a car under a licensee yeah. and paying that licensee fee? We hear a lot of conversations about licensee fees and and the sort of in the spectrum of thirty to sixty seventy thousand dollars a year. Other sort of figures we're hearing from members these days i'm sort of averaging around 50 but you know is that a similar sort of cost you're looking at for for running your self-licensed business or does it you know it's structured differently but does it come out roughly the same i think if you've got a well-run business it can be cheaper than an authorization some of those authorizations even thirty thousand, is at the lower end now so you've got some groups talking about 70 to eighty thousand. And when you look at it, tonight's point, it's about those services, right? So are you providing those? But what are you going to have to pay for on an ongoing basis? Well, you've got PI. So your PI is going to hit you. You're going to bear that. So traditionally, your licensee might have provided that or subsidised it. So, like, I mean, last time I looked at it, it's around 2.2% of your revenue. So you've got to screw all around 12,000, 16,000 minimum for your PI. Uh, you've got your ASIC levy, and that went up a little bit this year. <laughs> Uh, 160%. Um, you've got the AFCA membership, that's, that's only you know, chicken feed from that perspective. You've got all your statutory lodgements costs for your FS7 and whatever else. And then you've got the things that are really discretionary, which are absolutely fundamental, which are your external support services. And they vary from next to nothing to, you know, if you engage the big law firms and you'll be paying, you know, a lot of money in a couple of uh, internal organs at the same time. But it can, I mean, we see a lot of businesses that manage and do quite well when their spending is about thirty dollars to $40,000 per year. Now, remember, you know, if you become an authorised rep, each authorised rep increases the cost. When it's self-licensed, it's not a severe cost. So when you've got, you know, four to five people in an AFSL, it's actually quite cost-effective. The biggest issue is can you get the discounts because you know, there are going to be things that, that would have cost you either nothing or next to nothing at a licensee. So 
you think about X plan or midwinter or whatever else you research, all those things that you got for nothing or bundled in, you're going to have to pay for those. And you can negotiate good deals uh, through various providers, but they are they are cost. But we tend to say, look, the minimum you're going to go away with if you're running your own license is probably around thirty thirty five thousand dollars a year. Um, but realistically, um, most organisations of that size need more support than they're actually getting. So. Sean, can I just ask a question? When you quote that price, are you excluding like a CRM software in that price? I'm not including, yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I, I haven't dealt with technology because that's a discretionary cost because yeah. you know, we all know you need a CRM, but theoretically you could run it without it. Sure. There are practices that just have, you know, boxes of files and whatever else, and it's inefficient, but you can do it. So I'm just concentrating there on the the absolute mandatory things that we have to do. So we have to get our FS70. We have to have an external auditor. We have to get PI. Um, you know, there are things we can, and we have to be an African member. So I know what all those costs are. The other things are discretionary. So you're right. When you start to apply those things and you go, well, what CRM am I going to get? And then the CRM is tied into the planning software. And then the planning software is often tied into the research. And so... Yeah, it's almost like it's, you can get, get so far down the rabbit hole when you try to explore those costs. And this is where yeah. I think the point you made earlier is so uh, so important for prospective licensees is about doing that cost and benefit analysis. Look at what you're getting because a lot of advisors underestimate the value of the services they get in the same way that licensees tend to overestimate the value of the services they're providing, right? But there's a happy medium between the two. And you've got to do that analysis first because otherwise you get your license and then you look at all the costs and then you have that, that moment of panic and it's too late. So you've got to have that. And I, we're always in favour of spending a lot of time before the application, really sitting down with people and saying, is this the right path for you? Because it's like, you know, Alice in Wonderland. If you don't know where you're going, any path's good, right? It's about taking a step back and going, where do I want to be? Where do I want to be in five years, 10 years, 20 years? Do I have the discipline, resources and capability to get there? And if I don't, maybe I should work for somebody else, partner with somebody else or do something else. Yeah. I think um, further to your point there too, Sean, that one of the things that's sort of often overlooked is the time or administrative function of running your own AFSL or at least getting it set up and off the ground. And it's the things that people don't really think about. Um, you know, they're going to have to be dealing directly with the product issuers, transferring advisor codes, potentially setting up new advisor codes and direct contracts between the AFSL and, and the preferred product issuers that you're working with, um, which can be a significant drain on the business. And it's probably not uncommon for us to set up a license and they're not here from anyone for three months because they're so busy with all of that stuff. Um, so it's all managing expectations, I think, with the team. Uh, particularly if you're um, coming out of a licensee that's supported a CRM software that's been mandated that you're moving off into a new system that is again it's obviously there's a cost consideration of relicensing all of that but also the time and effort that's going to be required to set up in a new system can be significant and I think that it sort of really does need to be a bit of a warts and all think about all of the the, the moving pieces that are going to happen here and not sort of turn a blind eye to it because I think if you go in prepared then you're not going to be too shocked um, and sort of appreciate that it, it can be sort of at least six months before you feel like you're finding your feet again. You'll never be fully prepared. That's the other part. No matter how much you prepare, they're going to be. Because I know you mentioned about if you move to another system, 
But what we're seeing at the moment is even if you're on the same system, you could still be on with, with the same provider and still have enormous difficulties getting access to your client records and getting that transition. And these are some of the things I'm always, if you go from here to here, we know there's going to be a setup cost. But if I was using that system when I worked over there and I'm using that system now, why can't I access my client records? Why can't I generate SOAs? There's a whole, there's a whole infrastructure. And I think there's, when, when you really drill down to that licensing, you've, there's almost like a role for a compliance counsellor. Because I think all these people who are getting their licences don't appreciate how bad it is. And so you need someone to go around, and, you know, have tea and dickies with them in the way that Apra used to do. And just, you know, make sure it's going to be okay. We'll get through it. Uh, because you, once you get your licence, you're just working so hard under this pressure that ASIC might turn up tomorrow. You know, and even, even when you reassure them, ASIC are unlikely to turn up in your office tomorrow work on it over time, there's still this underlying fear that, you know, when the big institutions get surveilled by ASIC or get visited, you know, advisors don't take much notice of it, right? But there, there's this deep and abiding fear that they're going to be the test case, that ASIC's going to rock up and say, okay, well, I saw your licence application, you've got all these things in place, can you show me? And theoretically it can happen and it used to happen in the old days, but this is what's driving this I guess that three-month panic to try to get, you know, we're starting tomorrow, we need everything in place. And it's about, you know, taking a considered and a reflective approach to it and being appropriate and reasonable, but trying to help them let go of that panic and that that driving fear to a degree because it's, it's unhelpful. Okay, so I, there's a couple of themes that are really coming out from this conversation. And so... In the context of the best self-licensed businesses you work with, Nadia and Sean, um, there's two things that I want to explore a bit more. There are services that licensees provide to, to, to financial planners who are operating through cars and, and employed models that you're going to have to go out and source yourself. And we've touched on some of them, compliance and, and technology and things like that. What are the services that really good financial planning practices that are out there looking for and where do they actually find them? Because I know that you can go out and you can cherry pick bits and pieces or there are licensees now who are offering effectively, I guess, licensee for hire type arrangements where they you can go in and buy a package of, of services for them. There are others that have separated all the services out and you can go and buy the bits and pieces that you want. So where where should you be looking for these? What are the where are you finding really good ones? What are the ones that really good self-licensed practices are looking for? The second thing that I want to come back to after we finish that is is I want to start to talk about community and, and where we start to find communities of self-licensed practices. But but let's start with the the services and, and where you can start to find those services. Um, Nadia, have you got any thoughts on that? Yes, I do. <laughs> um, I think that predominantly, without fail, the service that stands above everything else that self-licensed advisors are looking for is compliance support. 
it, it just comes up time and time again in group discussions with uh, the various self-licensing support groups that I've worked with as well, that it's the one thing that probably they lose the most amount of sleep over and feel like they don't really have a strong handle on. Um, and there's sort of two ways to go about getting support in that area. And I guess the first one is, you know, joining a licensee services group, and there's a number of them out there. Um, you know, there's IWO for licenses, there's Centerpoint uh, Licensee Solutions, uh, BT Opens Offering, I've forgotten the name of it. Um, and then there's, um, I know there's a few other players in that space as well that uh, sort of have almost leveraged off the dealer groups that they own to be able to provide the discounting, the templating and other support services at a cost, obviously, too, to the self-licensed practices. Then there's the second one, which is those that choose to, because they're very strong in wanting to remain independent, which we totally understand in the current environment. Um, and they prefer to go out and cherry pick the services that they work with and deal directly with businesses like my own and Sean's um, and use the expertise of them. And then so there's various ways that you can do it, like you mentioned before, uh, which is sort of just, you know, it might be you just want to pick up the auditing. It might be that you want to pick up an AFSL review annually. Predominantly what our clients do is they come on an ongoing package and we run their compliance committees we give them the updated policies keep all of that the regulatory updates auditing etc so um, there's always the full service option as well which again doesn't appeal to everyone but there's always a solution out there for what you're looking for and there's plenty of professionals in in the market that specialize in these areas as well and then I guess to a lesser extent but still super, super important. And I think that's getting, whether it's somebody sitting on a board of advice for you, but helping drive the business decisions and the business growth and professionalism of the representatives is also, I think, something we see in those top practices as well, where they, they're working with external independent experts in that area as well. Sean, did you want to add anything? Oh, yeah, look, I agree with Nadia to, to a very great degree. It's hard to answer that question without almost, you know, indulging in shame and self-promotion, but I think she's absolutely right in terms of where their biggest sources of um, care, concern and apprehension all come around legal governance and compliance. Because traditionally it's always been a black box licensees that don't really know, you know, you, you receive compliance direction from your licensee and you just uh, respond accordingly. So they don't, they know it's important. They don't really know what it is, what it looks like or what it costs. And that's one of the real challenges for businesses because there are a lot of providers. So it's really hard. I mean, I, I think the challenge for, for any self-licensed business is once you identify the services you need, whether it's compliance, research, practice management, you know, your CRM, your technology solution, your power planning, and then you go down the model, an IT, HR. Well, who do you go to? Like, Because you can go to the, the groups that are formerly institutional licensees or associated with institutional licensees, but how do you balance being an independent business with that type of legacy? Because uh, there is a strong legacy that comes through that about this is the way we used to do it and whatever else. And there's no real way, in some way it's very hard um, for consumers to compare financial planners. It's very hard for financial planners to understand whether the compliance person they're talking to actually knows what they're talking about or has just boned up enough, did six months remediation on one of the big instays and now are ready to, ready to go. And it's incredibly dangerous because even though financial planning is credence, but so is compliance. You know, we, we tell them, we try to 
help them build for the future. We try to anticipate, we, we do reviews, we do licensure reviews, we help them refine their documents and processes and maintain all that type of stuff. But then, you know, you're never going to know how that, how that works in your business. And this is the real challenge for licensees about, and this is where that came back to the point I made earlier about risk, their tolerance for risk and their capacity to actually compare. And what I would say to any of these groups is that review your decisions. I mean, you're going to have an outsourcing policy, you're going to review what you outsource, take that seriously. Don't engage someone because you knew them when we used to be advisors together and they're a good guy, actually go to market, test them and compare apples with apples, which is the biggest issue. I always see some, they come to you and they go, well, this is what they're charging. And you go, yeah, but they're not doing anything either, right? There's a, there's a great uh, mismatch between, between cost and value. And ironically, even though financial planners have been talking to consumers for a long period about don't confuse cost with value, they often make that same mistake when they go into self-licensing. Thank you for those points. So what I'm hearing, though, is that there are a lot of different service providers you can go to. There are a lot of different pros and cons to each of those service providers. But as somebody who's coming fresh into the self-licensing world, making those sort of decisions, we touched on it before, but community becomes really important. So what are the good communities that you're seeing out there and the good places that that members can go to, to to try and find these support groups around self-licensing and and finding the right service providers? Look, there are, there are a number of different places you can look to because, you know, it, even with their inherent limitations or biases, those, those groups, whether it's BTA, but MLC Connect or whatever, at least have uh, networks in place. Like the... the the greatest challenge for most advisors, and particularly self-licensed businesses, is getting you know an objective understanding of where they sit. And community is far more important than they, they realise. And what we're seeing realistically across the board is that that is the real the real need for a lot of clients that we're seeing at the moment is that they can get all the hygiene stuff in place and whatever else, but they're looking for how do I connect with businesses like mine? How do I meet people? that I can test ideas with, that I can do those types of things. So your associations, you know, a good way to, to deal with them. Those, whether it's BT Open, MLC Connect or, or the other groups that are doing the same types of things. But you can also self-create your own communities. I mean, you'll meet people, you'll know, you'll know other advisors and similar businesses. I mean, the, the good practices know the other good practices because they keep an eye on them, even though they'll never acknowledge them. They, they know who their peers are and they know who aren't their peers. And so they can be self-licensed in a way that in a way that they couldn't when they were at, you know, institutional licensees. If you were a big practice of CFS and you wanted to catch up with a big practice at, at NAB and one at ANZ, you would get no support from your BDMs or estate manager or, or anything else unless there was an opportunity to recruit them into the group. Now, once you're self-licensed, you can be open. You can engage with your peers in a way that makes them fit. And those peers are also not only a way to, you know, give you information, share information, share tools and resources, and to support each other over time, help help you build businesses, but it's a trusted resource because to that point about who do you engage, like if someone says they're a compliance expert, are they a compliance expert? You go to the people who have played in that space. You look to the uh, uh, practices that have been around for a while that are growing, that are consistently growing, 
and talk to them about what they do and how they approach it and what are, and that's that, that's the real value of community, I suppose. I think the only other thing I'd add, there are some, I, the industry associations was an obvious one, um, the larger, more well-known ones like the FPA. Uh, there are some independent groups out there like the Boutique Financial Planners Group as well that specialise in a community-based independent group there that are for the self-licensed advisors out there. I think more traditionally, there's the licensee support groups is where a, a lot of clients sort of gravitate to because of structure, particularly around training and, and things that they, they can get on a regular basis. I always think it's a good start to speak to another advisor that runs their own licensee that you respect and, and talk to them, talk to them about what, you know, the challenges they've faced what's worked for them you know they will always have good recommendations they'll give you the you know the good experiences the bad experiences but it's understanding what your expectation from the service delivery is going to be as well you know a lot of times we have seen um, or come across unfortunately when it's too late and it's it's gotten to the stage where the AFSL is now dealing with ASIC, you know, and they're putting forward to ASIC, oh, but such and such was providing me with these compliance services. And what they haven't fully understood is that it hasn't been a comprehensive service um, and that it is not going to help them. And that just because they've got all these things that are off the shelf, like an off the shelf compliance manual, things start quickly unraveling because those processes usually start with, well, let's have a look at what you're doing. You tell us what you're doing. And then they call in all the, the, the documentation and all of a sudden you end up in this space where there's a complete disconnect with what the business thinks it's doing and what's actually down on paper. So, you know, you you sort of need to really have a comprehensive support solution in place that deals with AFSL compliance, that deals with advice compliance, and that can also identify those opportunities in the middle around policy and process improvement that can supply training to staff and advisors where they may sort of have no sort of loosely what their requirements are, but they don't understand really why they're doing it. And I think that's probably the biggest opportunity to train on is to get advisors and their staff to understand why they're doing something so that they're able to react to situations better rather than thinking, oh, I just do this because somebody told me years ago, this is what I should be doing. Thanks, Nadia. So as Nadia and Sean both generously pointed out, professional associations have have great communities of members um, and we obviously have a lot of self-licensed members in the FPA. I just wanted to highlight that we have the FPA professional practice program where there is a lot of good self-licensed businesses in those. If you haven't checked out FPA community, there are some great conversations going on there. There will be a thread related to this this podcast where you can start to ask some questions and and get some feedback. And and we have actually have a self-licensed community within communities, which is something else you can you can have a look at. The FPA CPD catalog has a lot of webinars and articles and information about running self-licensed practices and some of the support tools you can get there. And then of course, we've got the Ready Index, which is a great tool for helping you assess your business and, and where your business is and where you need to make improvements and, and grow there. So I, I think I'd like to thank Sean and Nadia for joining us today. But what I wanted to do was just give you an opportunity to do your elevator pitches and, and speak to our members about what, what services you're providing, particularly to this, this self-licensed community. So um, Nadia, what's what's your business and, and how, does it, how does it work and what are you doing? 
Yes, so my business is Kinetic Compliance. We are a full service compliance operator. So we do everything from license applications, variations, working with practices in particular as they're making that transition into self-licensing and doing that hand-holding is uh, probably one of our flagship offerings because that's what we see as the most important we don't want people getting their licenses and then just sort of being set on their own way so we'd like to come in and, and set up the framework the compliance framework help you customize your policies get all your key documentation in place put some structure around your key committees compliance investment etc and then help you with the auditing aspect as well so uh, we also do you know due diligence to help with book buyers so it is it's a very sort of um, broad offering but yeah our sort of our sweet spot is very much ongoing support to AFSLs that's a sort of full level. And Sean? Well Sean support is a team I think we're up to about 14 people now that was really built to provide compliance governance risk advice to advisors and to really help them move into the future and we've always thought that one of the biggest challenges for advisors and self-licensed groups is getting that innovative, unconflicted and effective compliance support. So that's what drove us to, to build this business. Now, we, we're a bit different. We take a risk-based and contextual approach to compliance, So, and we're also data-driven. So, again, when you look at, I think, what are we up to, about 13,000 client files were reviewed. When you look at the data, we can actually take uh, a really industry-wide approach to things. We can understand what's going on. And that helps our clients be able to understand that, you know, they're doing well, they're doing well relative to the industry and how they're doing in qualitative terms. And so that's what we're all set up. I mean, we do, the only thing we do not do uh, is power planning. Uh, apart from that, when we look at everything from reg tech to training to ongoing advice to reviews, to governance, to compliance committees, we do all that as well. We also publish a lot. So there's a lot of tools on the Insured Support website that advisors can go to to help them make the decision and to understand what those obligations are. And because we're a big team, we stay on top of things because it's if you're only complying with the law as it is now, you're already behind. Um, the, great, the great opportunity of our uh, working financial services is you'll never get bored and there's always lots and lots of things to do. As I like to say, we have four laws, we have eight regulators, and we have a hell of a lot of chaos in between all of those things, which is uh, why I love my job. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Nadia, for joining us today on the FPA podcast. Uh, thank you for your amazing insights. As I said, we've got a discussion going on FPA community in relation to this podcast. So please jump on there and, and join the conversation there. Ask your questions, look for support, join the community. But uh, thank you, Sean and Nadia, for joining us today. And thank you, everyone, for listening into the FPA podcast. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Nadia. See ya. Thanks, ben.